How are we all? Yeah, very well, thanks. What about you, Alistair? I'm all right, I'm surviving. Paddy, obviously he's not that far away, so you don't need to shout at him. (laughs) (laughs) Although most people do. Hello, I'm Colin Schindler and welcome to another edition of Football Ruined My Life, the podcast that examines the quality of football life in England before the Premier League that enthuses about the game as it used to be when it was full of muddy pitches and bent referees. There we go. (laughs) This week, there's a bit of a change. We have my usual septuagenarian friends, John Holmes, Mr Leicester City, and Paddy Barclay, the football writer, but we also have our first guest. And our guest is a distinguished one at that. And if I tell you we're going to be talking about Burnley, I emphasise the rolling R with Lancastrians, then you'll know we're talking to Alistair Campbell. So, Alistair, welcome to the Football Podcast. At last, your chance to put politics to one side and talk about what really motivates you. Okay, I'm happy to do that. I suspect politics might weave its way in at some point, but we'll see. But I wanted to ask you at the beginning, because it's something that's actually intrigued me, and I'm sure there's an answer which I just missed, but I know you have Scottish ancestry. I know you went to school in Leicester, which gives you brownie points with John Holmes, and I know you went up to Gonville and Keys College, Cambridge, to read Modern Languages, which gives you brownie points with me, because that's where I spent half my life, and you spent most of your career in Westminster and Fleet Street in the world of politics and journalism. And I'm just wondering, how on earth did Burnley get into all this? Well, it's true that I went to senior school in Leicester, but my primary school was in Yorkshire, because I was born in Keithley in West Yorkshire. And I'd say that when I was a kid, we were equidistant between Leeds and Burnley. Bradford was a little bit nearer. I did go and watch Bradford City from time to time. But Burnley then, you were really talking, I was born in 1957, so the big three were basically Manchester United, Spurs and Burnley. So I was going to see one of the biggest clubs in the country. And then when I moved away from Yorkshire to Leicester, it happened because my dad, who was a vet, he had a very bad accident and he had to give up his practice and he joined the Ministry of Agriculture and he got moved to Leicester. I actually went to the same school as Gary Lineker and Emil Heskey, City Boys. But something about the fact that I left, I'd been a big Burnley fan, went to every home game. The kind of draw of it just never left me. I got into all sorts of trouble at school. Apart from PE, I never, ever, ever took my Burnley scarf off, ever. I'm sorry about this, John, but it was like me saying, I don't really belong here, and I'm fine with that. And then also, I was a stroke of luck. I had a German teacher called Mr Mason, who was also a Burnley fan. Oh. And... He took me to the odd away game. I remember I went to Derby with him. I went, I think I went to Knott's Forest. And then I started to, once I learned that you could just put your thumb out and get lifts to places, I started doing that. That's where it started. And I've never lived in Burnley. I've got no family connections in Burnley, but the club has always been this massive draw. And yet, of course, you were too young to remember their most famous moment, which I saw at Main Road. You beat us 2-1 and you won the league championship. Well, I did see that team. Because my first ever game, I was four, so they were reigning league champions. I've got no memory of it at all. 
If it's funny enough seeing Paddy there, and you mentioned the Scotland thing, my first actual football memory is a Kilmarnock game. Oh. Because I used to go, we spent all our summer holidays in Scotland, going around various relatives' farms yeah, and what have yeah, you. Yeah. And Kilmarnock, my uncle Jim, he was my favourite uncle, and we used to go and see Kilmarnock. And also when we went to Hibs Hearts Derby. So a lot of my early football memories that I actually have as memories were from Scotland. And then my first real Burnley memories would probably have been of Andy Lockhead, Willie Morgan, Gordon Harris. I'll never forget Gordon Harris literally, he didn't do it deliberately, literally farting in my face as he took a carry. <laughs> we're literally right at the front. And I can remember telling my lads, I can't believe that Gordon Harris farts. I can't believe that. <laughs> as he stretched to take a throw in this huge fart. <laughs> Moving on, does that mean that you don't remember the, the FA Cup final of 1962? No, no memory at all. Oh, that's sad. That's sad. The two great moments in, in Berlin. No, I, don't, I didn't go. I'd have been five then. Um, yeah. We have had some really great days out at Wembley with Burnley, though. Here's a quiz question for you. The last time that the old Wembley had a crowd of more than 80,000. Well, it was some Tim Pot Cup that you wanted. Yeah, exactly. What was, what was Johnson's paint trophy. No, not bad. Sherpa had trophy, Wolves against Burnley. Yeah, we lost 2 What was the crowd? 80, 81,000, I think it was, yeah. Well, I suppose it would be with those two yeah. great clubs, yeah. Did you ever go to a Scotland-England game? Yes, I did, yeah. 130,000? <laughs> no, I did go to one at Hamden, which was, I don't know what the crowd was. I think it would have been Jim Baxter's era. Yeah. That would be 135,000. It would yeah, have been 135,000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really do have a bad memory. The only memory I have of that is actually, I remember going in mm. and this massive staircase you had to go up to get onto the terrace. The only actual memory I have of that, again, nothing to do with the game, was about the crowd and the kind of scale of the thing. It is the crowd, isn't it, that actually turns us on to football in the first place. I was seven when I first went. I, too, have no memory of that first game, but it's the crowd and the atmosphere Mm. that takes you into football, I think, to start with. And it was very different in those days, wasn't it? It wasn't the sort of antiseptic atmosphere almost that you've got a lot of, a lot of grounds now you were with real people mm. and it was bustling and it was noisy and it was very much for me I mean you were a vet's son so like the rest of us I suspect you're sort of a middle class family thrust into the middle of what was then real working class culture as mm. I saw it and a completely new world for me and the noise and the atmosphere of the crowd absolutely captivated me Mm. Certainly, if I think about early memories of going to Burnley, they're mainly about the smells and the atmosphere and the noise. I'll never forget the first time I ever heard a song about Willie Morgan. I just thought that's really clever. (laughs) I was only little. I mean, I was, you know, I thought that's really funny. (laughs) I do remember the colours. I think one of the things that attracted me to Burnley rather than Leeds or Bradford or Huddersfield or the other teams that we went to see was the colours. I just Mm. loved the colours. I always have done. Mm. And yeah, I think you've got to be careful not to over-romanticise it, because I do agree with you about the game being too, you say, antiseptic and a bit manicured and the grip that the telly's got of it now and so forth. But I did like the feeling of that very, very edgy atmosphere. But I think when it got really nasty, it was pretty horrible. That was later, though, wasn't it? That was the (laughs) 70s. They weren't glorying in actually the football or anything like no. it. I love the football, don't get me wrong. The football was brilliant. And like you say, you know, the players 
were heroes to us as kids. I can remember being taken to have my hair cut in Leicester and my dad said, the guy having his hair cut over there, that's Johnny Anderson. He plays in goal for Leicester. And, you know, I was open-mouthed that they, yeah. Johnny Anderson was a Scottish international at that point. So, well, I'll tell you uh, something, John. My dad was the vet to Frank Worthington's dog. <laughs> was called, I think it was called Elvis. I think the it dog was, was called, called Elvis. Elvis. You're yeah. quite right. No, but I, th- I, I think you, 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 the thing about the... The only time I've ever left a ground early was an Anglo-Scottish Cup game when Celtic came down and the police had got the intelligence all wrong mm. and there were tens of thousands of Celtic fans came down <laughs> and caused absolute mayhem. And actually, I took an old girlfriend with me and it's, I think it's the only time she'd ever been to a Burnley game. And I told her it was all fine and all this violent stuff and nonsense. And we were opposite these... The Celtic fans got in everywhere around the ground. These guys are in the old B-hole end and they were taking out the stakes out of the terraces. And then they were lobbing them into the crowd. I said, I really think we've got to get out of here. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, Colin, mm. I think this fueled my anti-establishment attitudes in life. When I was about nine, I went to Manchester City, Main Road, and a couple of yobs nicked my bobble hat. I went to a police officer on his horse and I said, those two kids running there laughing at me, they just stole my bobble hat. And he said, what do you want me to do about that then? <laughs> yes, well, that's a fairly conventional police response to almost any crime. Isn't From it? that flowed everything else. Yeah, well, yeah. I understand. I understand that. But one of the problems with Burnley is it's, it's associated with Bob Lord, and one of the problems with Bob Lord is he's associated with the bad old days. Now, I'm quite sure that there is another point of view. He was the butcher in more senses than one of Burnley, and somehow he becomes the standard bearer for when football was terrible and when football was run by people who had no business running football clubs. And Mm. I'm convinced that there was another side to Bob Lord. I didn't know him. I might have bumped into him every now and again, and people would have pointed at him. He's arrived at the match and, oh, there's Bob Lord. And he was certainly one of the best, the most famous football club chairman of his day. People still talk about him, and the you know the main stand is still named after him. We sold Martin Dobson to build it. Yeah, still rankles for people. I guess if you were putting another side, it would be the fact that Burnley, such a small town, in such a massive football area, mm. was an established Division One club that was doing amazing things and. You know, that has to be to some extent down to the fact that he was in charge. I mean, he clearly got a lot wrong. He got caught up in all sorts of anti-Semitism stuff. And there was the whole thing about, you know, he was very, very against television. And I think there'd be people today who argue he had a point. But I think he saw it very much as, you know, I don't want anything that's going to stop a single person. He he may have been maligned, Alistair, in that respect, in that he felt that television was getting it on the cheap. And in that respect, mm. he was right. Yeah. The other yeah. thing, he was supposedly against the maximum wage. But as I read it, what he said was that the maximum wage should still be there, but it should rise every year as mm. the income of the football clubs rise. Mm. And that if you didn't do that, the big clubs would take over. And in that, of course, he's been yeah. proved completely correct. Yeah. I mean, I think he got, you know, I one of the joys of having been a Burnley fan all my life is that one of my heroes was Paul Fletcher, who subsequently became a really close friend. He's a fabulous bloke, but when he talks about Bob Lord, he has both the bad stories and the good stories. He has the guy who intimidated people and bullied and 
didn't really think that players should have any rights whatsoever. But at the same time, he had the guy who really, really cared about the club and really cared about the players doing well and so forth. I think he cultivated the image that he got, but he's still, you know, nobody can deny he's a massive part of Burnley's history. Yeah, I think a lot of people talk about when clubs used to be owned by the local butcher. Mm. Actually, people don't use that in a critical way. People yearn for that, I think compared with ones that are owned by nation states with dubious blah, blah, blah. Mm. But the other thing that Law did, he's castigated as a dinosaur, yet he launched probably a prototype academy, mm-hmm. relying, I think, mainly, Alistair, on players from the northeast. The northeast, the... yeah. And Northern Ireland as well. He certainly developed a scouting system that was as good yeah. as anybody else's, you know, dependent upon targeting certain areas where he thought there were probably good footballers who weren't mm. getting noticed. Mm. And he was right about that as well. You're right. Well, Alistair, you've had a fairly up and down life, even by football standards as a supporter. I played with Maradona. Uh, that's true. Yes, no, I meant not so individually, but as a fan of Burnley Football Club. There was a moment, probably unknown to a lot of our younger listeners, where Burnley ever so nearly went out of the league. I assume mm. you were there for that famous day. Can I you was. tell us about it? May 1987, quarter of a century after being top of the league, we had to win the last game at home to Orient to stay up. I do think actually it was probably the greatest game ever for Burnley. Crowds have been gone down to three, four thousand. I'd honestly, you know, we'll never know. You can't prove the counterfactual. But I think if we'd lost that game and gone out of the league, I think the club would have gone. And I mean, you guys have all been to Burnley. You know, it's. I don't think there's any other town in the country where the football club is so dominant Mm. architecturally, physically, culturally. I think we and Middlesbrough have still got the highest proportion of population that actually go to games. And I think that was all reborn. I think what happened was that people just realised how close we'd come to literally going out of business and people had turned away from the club as we'd sort of, you know, sunk lower and lower. And suddenly people realised, God, blimey, that was a close shave. And ever since then, really, we've, you know, we've had lots of ups and downs, but we've always been pretty good and, and always had very strong foundations, always had good away support. It's like recovering from a fatal illness. You're aware of life after you've nearly died, I suppose. Yeah, exactly, so. exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and there's a clip from that night. There was obviously the two goals, but the clip that became defining on the BBC News that night, it's been every time there's a feature about Burnley, they always show it as this woman at the end of the game, just sitting in the stand, literally kind of tears streaming down yeah. her face because she can't quite believe this miracle. It was a national event. I mean, I got to the press box and sitting next to me was Patrick Collins, arguably one of the most distinguished sports writers in the country. And he'd gone to that game. And bear in mind, this is, a, as Alistair just said, a team that at that time had an average crowd, even boosted by nearly 17,000 that day. The average crowd I have here... 3,257, because it mattered so much. I mean, Torquay were in danger of going out of the league that then Lincoln, I think, were the other. But with all due respect to those clubs, it was because it was Burnley that it was a story. Just to give one other indication of how much it mattered, and I can still feel the tension of that game. I was only in the press box, and the tension was such, the local reporter there was a man called Keith McNee, Mm-hmm. who, like all local reporters, he was a bit of a king of the press box. So you're a little bit frightened of him. Very gaunt man, wasn't he, uh, Keith McNee? Very lean and pale that day. I've never seen him as pale as he was that day. 
And he died of a heart attack a few days mm. later. Nothing will ever convince me that that game didn't contribute to his early death. I, th- I think Frank Clark, the Orient manager, said that he'd been told before the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know that? The story is, who knows if the police had a twinkle in his eye, but he said, if you win today, I can't guarantee your safety. <laughs> I can certainly remember very few times being in a neutral ground you know, a ground where I don't, mm. I shouldn't really care about the outcome. I can mm. still feel my stomach churning. I mean, how many games, how many sporting events can you go from a position where the crowd is 500, 600% bigger than it normally is? Mm. Yeah. Answer when it really, 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 really matters. You know, and I'll be honest, there was a period, Colin won't like this, but it was actually when John Bond was our manager. Uh, <laughs> I stopped going. I just lost faith and I just thought, you know, for all the traveling involved, I just stopped going for a while. And then, you know, we go down and down and down and down. And then it all comes down to this one game. When we got promoted to the Premier League the first time, the BBC, that's my only ever BAFTA, I have to tell you. I want a regional (laughs) BAFTA. I did a documentary for the BBC called Burnley Are Back. And I interviewed Neil Grucock and Ian Britton, who were the two guys who scored our goals. Neil Grucock, ex-Leicester, you see. Yeah, Leicester yeah. Connection. Oh, it's always, there's always a Leicester connection, John. You know yeah. that. They're just part of their pictures are still around the ground. And yes, the promotions. Yes, the cup finals and all that. But I put that down as the most important day in our history. Yes, I can understand that. Can I ask you two questions? Mm. One... Who is the best player you've ever seen in a Burnley shirt? And two, who is your favourite Burnley player of all time? Well, I'm just on the off chance that Paul Fletcher's listening. I knew you'd say that. Probably got to say Paul Fletcher to both, but I'll now tell you the truth. I think I'd probably say Leighton James as the guy who... We've got this player at the moment, Anna Zarouri, Belgian-Moroccan, and he's got this thing about when he gets the ball on the wing, you've just got this feeling he's going to do something. And that's what Leighton James was like. So I'd probably say him. You know, when you think about it, all of the players that have played for us in the Premier League are probably better footballers. And I think they would admit that because football has developed so much. I think one of the players of the modern era that I loved watching was Stephen Defoe when he played in midfield for his Belgian guy. Yeah. But yeah, I think think I'd go Leighton James and Paul Fletcher. I mean, you're talking about wingers like Leighton. What about David Thomas? Oh, yeah. And, and he's another one I've kept in touch with because he's a very, very close friend of Fletch. And that team, actually, they still go away on holidays and Frank Casper, Stan Turn. And, and Dave Thomas, who you probably know this because he wrote a book about it. He's gone blind and fantastic people. And they're just great to talk to about this very, very, very different era. And without any bitterness, what would Paul Fletcher be today? He'd be like, I mean, okay, he's not Harry Kane, but he's... Probably Vardy. He's, I mean, maybe not because he didn't play for England, but he'd been a top modern-day striker. He would say his first salary at Blackpool and Bolton was, you know, whatever it was, a few quid a week. You're not jealous of these guys on 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 grand a week. He said, nah, fair play to them. And the other thing he says is that, you know, with all this debate about dementia, I remember he said recently, because Peter Noble died and, and he'd had dementia, and not surprising with the whole Jeff Astle thing that his family thinking, what is that to do with him having been a footballer? Because Nobby was a you know great header of the ball. And Fletch says, you know, it might be the case, but he says that if somebody just sat us down when we were in that dressing room before a game and said, by the way, guys, there is a chance that in 40 years time, you might die a bit prematurely because you're going to get this thing that we don't know about yet called dementia. 
would we have still gone out and played? And we would. I love the fact they've got that attitude. They're just not bitter about what happened to them. Alistair, I just want to leave you with this idea that when Summerby talked to me about his time at Burnley, he said it was the best contract he ever had. Bob Lord gave him the best welcome he'd ever had. He had an absolutely marvellous time there. And he ended up trying to sell you shirts, I seem to remember. Well, it was worse than that. And I hope hope if he's listening, I hope his wife's listening as well. The aforementioned ex-girlfriend that I took to the Celtic game, I also took her to a game at Notts County. And somebody was playing and it was Boxing Day. And we got there just as it was being called off. We got just in the ground. And, oh, gosh. So the players were out having their little sort of walk around the pitch, having a look at the snow and what have you. So we're standing there. Mike Summerby comes over. He had no interest in me whatsoever, but he was quite attracted to this young lady that I was with. So we ended up, he invited us back into the players' lounge where they were all having a drink after the game that never took place. And then he said to me, he says, your, your shirt's a bit scruffy, isn't it? I said, what do you mean? It's all right. What's wrong with it? He said, I can get you some smart shirts. So he, <laughs> he goes off to his, to his car and he comes back with all these sh- shirts that he's flogging to everybody. So anyway, my girlfriend bought me a very nice shirt. But he had all sorts of stuff. He had shirts, trousers, shoes. Yeah. He had a shirt shop with uh, George Best. Yeah, he, he did. did. Yeah, he yeah. did. In fact, I've got one of some of these shirts. It's got a collar. Oh, the collars were down to here. It was ridiculous. Yeah. You could have made two extra shirts out of the yeah, collar. They were, they were like a floppy ears on a dog. Yes, right there, that's here, right. This. <laughs> it was pink with a yellow trim. It was truly <laughs> horrible. I tell you, one of my favourite football photos ever, it was the back page of several of the papers. I think it must have been a, an agency photograph, but... We were playing Leeds at Turf Moor and there were like four Leeds defenders, you know, dirty Leeds. They were lined up facing Mick Summerby and Summerby was there like that with both fists raised. And the, the caption was, anyone fancy a go at the Burnley battle? It was a brilliant <laughs> 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 Moving on, Alistair, to your subsidiary interest in politics. I think about my early days, which slightly preceded yours, but my first prime ministers were Anthony Eden and Harold Macmillan. There is no way in which I could imagine them going into heading practice with the England manager. Harold Wilson, on the other hand, was a proper football supporter. One of his party pieces was to name the entire Huddersfield Town team of 1923. He could do that. He carried the photograph throughout his career, apparently, in in his wallet. It's the real thing. And you can tell. People who know about football can tell another football sport, a proper one, very quickly. But football, which had never been the province of, of a politician aiming for popularity becomes this in the latter part of the 20th century. Can you explain why and how this, because you were virtually at the centre of all this? Well, I think it might have been one area of the kind of national political life where I maybe did allow my own interests to get pushed into the debate more than they might otherwise have been. But at the same time, I'd say that both Tony Blair and Gordon Brown are football fans. I mean, Tony doesn't go to many games partly because of, and didn't during that period. Because he never security. watched Jackie Milburn either, did he? Oh, that was a myth. Uh, shame was on a, you. Exactly. Thank you, Paddy. That was a total myth. The guy who got that running admitted it was a myth. He never, <laughs> ever said it. Anyway, but Tony liked football, liked watching football. He and I used to talk about the managers after match interviews. And Tony does quite a good Stan Turner impersonation from the days when Stan was doing his after match interviews. But I think what happened was partly because of the advent of the Premier League and the whole kind of what was happening with Manchester United at the time and Alex Ferguson being a big Labour guy and 
what have you. It just felt that it was a part, not a big part, but it was part of that kind of modernizing Britain story, if you like, that narrative. And the thing with Kevin Keegan, that was a Labour Party conference when we were still in opposition. And every morning we used to have these team meetings just to go through everything that's going on in the day. And I can remember saying, right, we're doing this thing with Kevin Keegan. And I've talked to Kevin Keegan and he's up for doing the thing where he and Tony just head the ball to each other. And virtually everybody else was saying, that is ridiculous. He'll make him look a complete idiot. But I'd said the same thing to Kevin Keegan. And Kevin said, listen, don't worry about it. Because me heading it to him, it's like him throwing it to me. As long as he gets it near me, I'll get it near him. And that's exactly what happened. So Tony did put a couple that were off direction. But Keegan sort of got down and managed to flick it up and put it right up. So when you watch it, Tony's kind of looking really kind of a bit nervous. But he's literally, if you think about it, any one of us, if somebody threw us a ball, we could head it back, right? And I'd said to Tony, listen, Keegan has assured me this is going to work really, really well. And I think, was it 23? People were bloody impressed by that, though. They really were. You think it might have swung the final vote of a 160 landslide? I'm not sure it was solely responsible, but it might have played a minor part. But every Prime Minister since has wanted to be part of this Nonsense. You know, the classic David Cameron of, of not being quite sure whether he sports Aston Villa or West Ham because they play in the same colours. How do we get there? I don't know. I think that I've got much more respect for the ones who are open about not being bothered. Yeah, of course. we all. I have. love the fact that Tony Banks was MP for West Ham, but he used to walk around West Ham with a bloody Chelsea rosette on. You know, he, <laughs> he, he, he would never hide that. But Johnson, he's a charlatan. He doesn't care about yeah. anything but himself, doesn't like football. Rishi soon, I could be very surprised. Let's trust Ditto. I did think during the last Euros, I mean, watching Johnson and Rishi Sunak and Pretty Patel all dressing up in their England shirts, I mean, it was awful. It was horrible awful. To watch. Awful. Yeah. And totally unconvincing. You mentioned Gordon Brown before. A few journalists were invited to number 11 when he was the Chancellor. As a boy, he sold programmes programs, outside right, yeah. Starks Park, Ray Throbus yeah. Ground. And I asked him, I'm a Dundee supporter, and Dundee's most famous game in the 1962-3 season was against Wraith Rovers, 5-4, after with 4-2 down with 15 minutes to go. And he didn't remember the game because he's much younger than me, but he did remember some of the players. There was a bald left half called Andy Lee, and he knew exactly how Andy Lee played and, and so on, even though he kind of... Well, he might have seen him at the end of his career or something. Yeah, but, I mean, yeah. that was a proper football fan. Yeah, no, Gordon follows football, knows his football. And I don't mind. There's no reason why a politician should be interested in a particular sport. I think they should know about it. I think they should. You need to be kind of on top of all the sort of modern cultural references. But I can't stand the sort of pretense. And I mean, you know, it's like not knowing the name of your wife, you know, not knowing which mm. football team you support. It's just, it's just beyond any... <laughs> comprehension. I mean, Harold Wilson, of course, you probably know the story about when they were deciding on the general election, the date for the election in 1970, it was going to be June 1970, or would they wait for the autumn? And one of Wilson's problems was England were defending the World Cup in Mexico. And if they got knocked out in the middle of the World Cup... Would he get the blame? Would he get the blame? And as it transpired... Yeah, I do think these things are, are overblown. That being said, Paddy will definitely appreciate this story because even though I'm a massive Burnley fan, I'm also a massive Scotland fan. And how can I put this? I was at Euro 96, England against Germany. 
I was sitting next to one of John Major's special branch detectives who was also supporting Scotland. John Major was in the front row of the Royal Box as Prime Minister. And you could feel that he was in that kind of Harold Wilson mode. If, you know, if yeah. England really do go all the way, maybe I've still got a chance. Yeah. I've got to be honest. I mean, I you, know this is... You were supporting was, Germany. I didn't want to use those exact words, Paddy, but very close to the mark. So <laughs> I didn't celebrate the goals, the penalties, nothing. But as we're walking through the car park, Tony says, can you just try just for two minutes not to show how happy you are could you at least try and look a little bit sad as we walk past these thousands of english voters anyway we got in the back of the car and i punched the roof and i said jetzt mein kapitän sind die tories ganz gefuckt (laughs) (laughs) alistair do you ever as a person i never went to an england match as a journalist without supporting the opposition. I would have supported Slobodan Milosevic's select against England. But I do feel a little bit ashamed of it. It's a bit childish, isn't it? Why do we do it? I think it's a reaction to the feeling of being treated like an inferior. Yeah. Look, you can remember even better than I can, but growing up, when you got things like Charlie Buchan's annual and all that stuff, Scottish oh, yeah. football was as big as English football. Mm. Yeah. And that's gone. And you've got this kind of, superiority that comes your way and I've got to be honest although I'm you know a very sort of proud patriotic British guy I can't stand the kind of narrow nationalism that goes with a lot of football well a lot of international football I agree with that during this Euros I was guest presenting Good Morning Britain after Piers Morgan's strop you should look this up Paddy because it'll it'll make you laugh I took my bagpipes in having learnt the Italian national anthem on the bagpipes. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my contribution to the build-up. Alistair, final question for you. There's a well-known story that Harold Wilson had to be physically restrained from going into the England dressing room at half-time in the World Cup final and telling them how to win in the second half. Has Tony ever, ever wanted to do anything remotely like that? No. What a relief. There was the time when Newcastle were in the Cup final against Arsenal. And we were at this G8 summit up in the Midlands in Western Park. And it was the day of the cup final. I got hold of Kenny Dalglish's fax number at Wembley in the dressing room. And I got Tony to do him a handwritten good luck note. At which point the Japanese Prime Minister, Nishimura, walks into the room and sort of says, you know, what are you doing? And, and we explain through the interpreter, it's the cup final, football. Tony's wishing good luck to Newcastle United manager, Kenny Dalglish. Japanese Prime Minister got completely the wrong end of the stick, says to his people, go and get me the headed notepaper. So Kenny Dalglish may or may not be aware that that Japanese letter that came through <laughs> was from the Japanese Prime Minister saying, good luck against Arsenal. You mentioned Tony Blair before, and you said he would never have done that, but did he not inadvertently... Oh, Glenn Hoddle. Yes. He was boxed into a corner there a bit. He was a bit. I think it was Breakfast TV. There was the whole thing going on about Glenn Hoddle and what was the woman's name? Eileen Drury. Eileen Drury, yeah. And it was like the big, big thing going in the papers. Tony was on doing this interview about other stuff. He got asked a question. He tried to say not very much. Yes. But indicating the tone that he got why people were a bit kind of nonplussed about this. And we got out and the headlines were running as, you know, Blair says Hoddle must go. And I remember phoning David Davis and I said, listen, can you get a message to Glenn? It's not what he said and da, 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 da. But I think it did 
sort of just adds to the whole kind of sense of momentum. But seized upon and used as a yeah. sort of weapon, yeah. I don't know if Tony spoke to him, but he certainly got me to get a message to Glenn Hoddle saying, look, if he played a part in his downfall, he's very, very sorry about it. The other guy, I saw at the weekend that Danny Wilson has written an autobiography. Because I don't know if you remember, there was a time when four Sheffield MPs, including David Blunkett, they got together to say they thought Danny Wilson should be given the boot. And I remember Tony said, oh, that's not right, that's not right. You know, we shouldn't be having MPs calling for money. They get, they get enough grief as is. And so I phoned him to say, look, you know, we're not happy with this and you should be allowed to get on your job without MPs getting too involved and what have you. But again, MPs like David Blunkett's a fascinating guy, you know, in relation to football. You should have a chat with him because, I mean, I know it sounds extraordinary because he's blind, but he genuinely supports Sheffield Wednesday. And I've been at games with him. This was one of the most extraordinary moments. I went with him in the director's box. Roy Hattersley was sitting just in front of us. And Burnley got a free kick just outside the Sheffield Wednesday box. And one of our players took this free kick. And the crowd had gone quite sort of subdued. And then the player runs up. He hits the ball. And Blunkett says to me, he says, what a shot. Mm. It hit the bar. It hit wow. The bar. How the hell did you know that? He said... Something about the sound, it was so clear. Yeah. It's the story of Wilfred Rhodes being able to tell by the sound of the ball on the back, because he was blind at the end of his life. He could tell who had hit it, where he'd hit it, yeah. and where it was going for four or not, because he knew what yeah. the field placings were, even though he was blind. It's crazy. If I'm talking to David about something, he'll say, did you watch, did you see, did you see that goal by so-and-so? Mm. And he'll tell you who the best passer in the team is. And, That's astonishing. You know, it really and he's it's, it's, it's picking up all the signals from the crowd and the noise. And all that. It's back to the point John was making earlier. It's like, you know, you can get an awful lot out of football that's not the football. You can tell, can't you? If you're outside a ground, you can tell how the game's going. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The strange experience was watching football during the pandemic. And we had, first of all, there was this silence. That was awful. And then they brought in this sort of potted noise mm. to start <laughs> with, which I thought was going to be good. But in the end, it's driving me mad. I had to switch it off. The crowd do react to the game, and you can tell whether a pass goes right or wrong, and you can tell when a crowd get angry and impatient. I was totally opposed to that fake noise thing because I was worried it would normalise the idea that you could watch football without any people there. Yeah. And if you're channel hopping at the weekend and you get into Scottish football and it's Celtic Rangers, then you're going to watch in part because there's that crowd there. Yeah. If you get in it's St Mirren against... Kilmarnock and there's quite a lot of empty seats around the place, you move on to the German people. Absolutely, so the, 100%. The crowd is totally, totally part of it. You know, I always say that television dominates now where sport goes and what happens to it mm -hmm. and why some sports die. And it was why athletics became popular, you know, the co-overt period. They put a lot of it on TV and then they realised that when you went round to the other side of the track, there was no one there. It's why county cricket... It's hopeless on mm. television. Yeah. You do yeah. require the crowd. Totally. The interaction between the crowd. I, I mm. can remember taking an American for his first game of English League football and he could not believe the interaction between the crowd and the play mm. and how close mm. we were to the game. Mm. Whereas mm. a lot of American sports are completely soulless. You're going around, mm. they're trying to flog you drinks or hamburgers yeah. or whatever or NFL. Mm. I mean, there's endless mm. breaks. 
the basis of the of the FA Cup giant killing is always having the big teams go to the little teams away from home. It may be only 15,000 people there, but there are crowds on top of you. The atmosphere is intimidating and big teams frequently bottle it. And that's the crowd. One of my little sidelines is I, I sometimes do the co-commentary for the Burnley Clarets Plus with Phil Bird. He's a, he's a really good commentator, but and I do the sort of Gary Neville bit uh, in a very, very, very biased way. <laughs> but I did a few. I did a few of the games during COVID, so that I could get in. And honestly, I didn't. I really didn't enjoy it. I remember we played at West Ham, and I think we won as well. But it just wasn't enjoyable. There's a part of you at the start. I love you when you can hear the players and you can hear the manager and what they're shouting at them and all that. But after a while, you think this is not the same. Listen, guys, I'm going to have to run. Yeah, I'm just just going to say thank you very much. We have nicked the six minutes off you that we weren't entitled to. So (laughs) thank you, Alistair. Thanks very much indeed. Good luck. All the best. See you, John. Thanks, Alistair. Take care. Well, we've enjoyed having Alistair Campbell on the programme and having him talk about his passion for Burnley and, and the insight he gave us into politics and football. So... Thank you to John Holmes, and thank you to Paddy Barclay, and thank you to Alistair Campbell, and we'll see you next time on Football Ruined My Life. The other person I spoke to who's very keen to come on as a guest at some stage is George Layton, who would talk about being in the first football soap, United. United, yes. Who remembers that except me and you, John? I'm not sure anybody remembers that show. Well, George does, who told a wonderful story about him being... He went out of the series because he didn't want to be typecast. So they transferred him. And he complained to the producer, saying they'd sold him for much too late. <laughs> <laughs>